It's 25 whole verses, 1 through 25. And I just want to say real quick, there's going to be a word that's going to show up on your screen as friends, and you're going to hear me read it as youngsters. The word is paideia. It can refer to young children, but it can also be an affectionate diminutive. So friends works too. So if you know anyone on the NIV translation committee, I'm not picking a fight, just a different word. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out fishing, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, hey, youngsters, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer, outer garment back around him because he had taken it off. It was hot and he was fishing. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the heavy net full of fish. They weren't far from shore. It was about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with some more fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Is that all 25? Perhaps it is. We're going to go on in scripture to also cover what Jesus says afterwards. And I didn't print out all my scripture, and I thought I had gone longer, so I just want to tell you what happens next. After saying, feed my lambs three times, I know you all know the story. Jesus says to Peter, while you are young, you dress yourself in the morning, and you go where you want to go. But when you are older one day, you will reach out your hands and others will dress you and lead you to where you don't want to go. I wanted to make sure I said that bit, even if I got my numbers wrong, because that is kind of the crux of where we're going today. When we consider our scripture this morning, I'd like to do this in the presence of two men 
who are somewhere between the ages of 70 and 90 and have been unwilling residents in a recovery unit in a hospital recently. Like Peter and John, these men have their own stories, personality, and ways of following Jesus. The first man, who we'll call Harley, has a heart that craves independence. Harley has been a trucker, a biker, and a seller of RVs. If you can name a machine that travels over land or water, Harley has driven it. Though hardworking and a union man, Harley's always had a bit of a wild side. He believes in God, but staring at a mountain range is more his worship style than singing hymns in church. Unfortunately, this indomitable soul is now in week nine of a hospital stay after a broken hip with complications. And every day, smiling physiotherapists speak encouragingly to him while he tries to put one foot in front of the other in the hallway with the help of his walker. Honestly, he resents the need for all of this fuss and for his body's inability to do what it used to do. And the other day, he got so angry about his increasing frailty and his need to rely on others that he howled in rage and threw his dinner tray at the wall. The second man who will witness the gospel with us this morning, we'll call him Herb. After a lifetime of work and family rearing, and after some years after the death of his wife, Herb moved in with his daughter and son-in-law and their two kids. This was a tough adjustment, but he managed it because he says, you do what you have to do in life and you keep going. Herb became an indispensable part of the household. The kids call him Papa. And he drove them around to their appointments and practices gladly. He also cooked meals and fixed things like the garage door opener. In fact, his son-in-law often said that Herb should have moved in years ago. Herb's faith is practical, like the rest of him. He knows what he believes. He's attended church for most Sundays over the past decades, and he programmed the coffee machine to have coffee ready when the family gets home every Sunday afternoon. That's Herb, efficient, organized, and helpful. But one year, Herb's eyesight and reflexes got to the point where he shouldn't drive anymore. And then five months later, he was told he had slow-growing prostate cancer. Oh, it was quite treatable, the doctors assured him, but Herb developed severe anxiety over these developments. And he ended up in the ER after a panic attack that felt like a heart attack, like the real deal. And unfortunately, a stumble in the hospital had left him with a foot injury that also required temporary hospitalization. At this point, he felt like he was falling apart. And now, he was sitting on his rollator outside of his room, across the hall at supper time, from some maniac who was in his room shouting and throwing a perfectly good dinner tray at the wall. I don't like this at all, he thought. This won't do. Now I want us to imagine that Herb and Harley 
finally healed enough and strong enough to go home, are here with us today, considering the last scene in John, in chapter 21. Like us, they are witnesses to the last scene in the Gospel of John. Jesus is standing on the beach, looking out at a boat that has Peter, John, called the beloved disciple, and a group of others in it. It's early morning. They've been out all night, and they've caught nothing. Should they be out fishing? Some wonder. Are they avoiding the work of the Great Commission? Are they fishing to get their minds off of the pain of losing Jesus? Some scholars do think so. They were fishing at night, after all, and nighttime is often used as a metaphor in the Gospel of John for unbelief. However, these are fishermen, and they need to eat. So finding them fishing is not unreasonable. Also, the water is cooler at night, and the fish may be more active. What I think is more important here is that Jesus comes to them in the ordinary stuff of mundane life, in their daily work. He doesn't have to meet them in a synagogue or on a mountain, but he meets them where they are, fishing near the shore. Another important thing is that their nets are empty. They've caught nothing. And when an apparent stranger on the shore calls out to them, youngsters, haven't you caught anything? Their answer is a little terse. No. Friends at Mountain View, we humans, we don't like to be caught with nothing. We don't take joy in empty nets after long hours of fishing. And having a witness to our failure doesn't make us feel any better about it. And so the story continues, with the stranger instructing them to try the other side of the boat, and the nets suddenly filling up with fish. It's at this point that the beloved disciple calls out, it's the Lord, and Peter quickly throws on his outer clothes, tucks them in, and dives into the water toward Jesus. This is another important thing. John recognized Jesus in an act of abundance. This is the kind of thing they saw Jesus do every day before the crucifixion. He brought abundance. An abundance of fishes and loaves to the crowds. An abundance of life to Lazarus. An abundance of wine at a wedding in Cana. An abundance of fish in an empty net on this still and sleepy morning by the shore. Christ brings abundance to those who have nothing. And what does Jesus do next? He says to the disciples, come and have breakfast. More abundance. These disciples are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, bring some of the fish you've caught. And Peter climbs back into the boat and hauls the net ashore. Now, I want to take a moment here and appreciate the physicality and even the virility of Peter's actions in this story. Peter is the one who first announces, I'm going fishing at the beginning of the tale. And after being up all night, it's Peter 
who throws on his clothes, dives into the water, swimming to shore to meet Jesus. Five or ten minutes later, he is climbing back into the boat near the shore and single-handedly hauling a net full of 153 large fish onto the shore. Peter is a man of action, impulsive and decisive. He's fairly young, he's powerful, and he's eager to prove himself to Jesus. So it must really stop him in his tracks when Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Echoing the three times that Peter denied knowing Christ before the crucifixion. And to drive the point home further, Jesus and Peter are sitting with others by a charcoal fire, just like Peter was when he denied knowing Christ for the third time the day he heard the rooster crow. And if this reminder of his betrayal is difficult for a man who is just bursting to use his strength to prove himself to Jesus, then what is it like for Peter to hear Jesus say, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, sorry, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is such an evocative statement. First of all, it's painful. Peter doesn't want to think of being old and weak and at the mercy of others. Second, it's a metaphor for life. Don't we all grow into life learning to do certain things for ourselves and going where we want to go? And if we are blessed enough to avoid serious illness and disability before then, doesn't aging inevitably involve at least some level of a loss of independence and control? Even the most robust woman that I have met when she got into her mid-90s was always chafing at the uselessness of her failing eyesight, hearing, and energy. She told me once on a frustrating day, if the good Lord doesn't have any earthly use for me, I wish he'd just take me home. The only way to avoid this kind of outrage is to die younger. Harley, Herb, and all their neighbors on the recovery unit in the hospital would definitely be able to appreciate Peter's uncomfortable feelings as Jesus describes what his old age will be like. Another part of the picture is this. Readers of John's Gospel, even most of its very first readers, would know that Jesus is also describing Peter's eventual martyrdom by crucifixion in his description. Peter may stretch Did I just go off? Oh, there we go. Sorry. Peter may stretch out his hands in front of him to be led somewhere in old age, but he will certainly be made to stretch out his hands along the crossbar that he will be made to carry to the post they will crucify him on eventually in the fashion of the day 
and just as Jesus was made to do. Commentators have spoken at length about the two images present in Jesus' description of Peter in his old age. Some say that it's mostly a metaphor for old age that also poetically describes Peter's martyrdom. Others, they flip that around and say this is a blatantly uh specific description, that's hard to say, uh, of crucifixion made to emphasize Peter's vulnerability. I don't know how much it matters as each image offers its own indignity and its own pain. Peter would understandably be taken aback at either image. Peter longs to glorify Jesus with bodily strength and decisive action in his life. And here's Jesus describing a future death marked by helplessness. And the narrator pauses here in scripture to say, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Well, Peter did want to glorify God, but his ideas around what is glorious always seemed to get in the way. Earlier, he had gloriously struck off the ear of one of the party who came to arrest Jesus, but Jesus rebuked him and then repaired the damage. Much earlier, Peter had seen Jesus transfigured and standing on a mountain talking to Elijah and Moses. Wow. But in the face of such miraculous glory, Peter didn't know what to do with himself, and he impulsively suggested that he start making shelters for them to hang out in. And now, this very morning, when Jesus had called out to them from the beach, he had jumped right into the water to get to Jesus. But he was also abandoning the fish that Jesus had just given him and leaving his friends to try to get that heavy net ashore. Peter still had so much to learn about how God is glorified in our lives. And so do I. And so do our witnesses, Herb and Harley. Let's pause here to look at how some folks in the Gospel of John either glorify God or participate in God or Christ being glorified. Jesus' disciples asked him why a man was born blind back in chapter 9. And Jesus said, it's so that the acts of God can be seen in him today. This man was actually glorifying God by being born blind. And Lazarus can top that. He glorified God by dying while Jesus was out of town. Jesus even said so to his disciples. He said, this, this is for God's glory. Lazarus's sister, Mary, had glorified Christ by wiping his feet with her hair after anointing them. Some servants at a wedding in Cana, they were able to participate in God being glorified by filling old wine jugs with water. And a crowd of 5,000 people participated in God being glorified 
by showing up hungry and eating fish and bread. The Apostle John, in our scene that we read today, he glorified Jesus by simply pointing to him. His lifelong ministry as an apostle can be summed up in the statement, look, it's the Lord that he made earlier that morning. John glorified God with his witness. And all of these examples, these are not quite the kinds of glory that the impulsive Peter, the indomitable Harley, or Handy Herb would have thought of themselves. And I don't know about you guys, but this isn't what I think of either when I think of glory. And here Jesus gives Peter two instructions for glorifying him. One, feed my sheep. And two, follow me. Right after he talks to him about what his death will be like, he turns around and says, follow me. And how many things might he have meant when he said, follow me? Follow me today on the beach. Walk with me. Follow me in your life. Follow me by feeding my lambs and helping the church. Follow me in death. You know, Jesus says, follow me. But in reality, Jesus meets us where we are in our everyday lives, like he did when he met each of the apostles. And like he did that morning on the beach when Peter and John and the others were fishing. So how do we follow? How do we follow the God of abundance? And what is the means by which Peter and John and Harley and Herb and you and I can glorify God? I suggest we do it by bringing him our empty nets. As Peter ran out, after Peter ran out of hope and denied knowing Christ three times, he came to Jesus empty and was met with an abundance of grace. And when the disciples caught no fish, they were met with an abundance of fish. We all have empty nets. And we glorify God in life and in death, and in the bodily strength and vitality of youth, and in the setbacks and lessons of age, by bringing him our empty nets and inviting him to fill them. We'll still have our own personalities and priorities, Peter started out and remained an impulsive guy who just loved to jump into action. Herb will always strive for being handy and useful and will always feel deeply uncomfortable when he feels sidelined. Harley will always long for freedom and agency and, to be honest, a powerful engine somewhere beneath him. And you and I, we also have our own desires and our own priorities our own hopes and fears and favorite ways of approaching life. But if we think we are using these priorities of ours to glorify God, we are as mistaken as Peter was when he cut off the ear of the servant of the, go of the guard, or when he said to Christ, I will never betray you. 
We don't glorify God by bringing our strength, our decisiveness, our usefulness to him. We glorify God when we bring him our empty nets. After our time here this morning, I think we all have an idea of what Peter's empty nets are and of Herb's and Harley's as well. John doesn't show us many of his own empty nets in his own gospel. I guess that's his prerogative. But the other gospels, they do show some of his empty net moments. But I wonder, what are yours and what are mine? And how do we bring our empty nets so that Jesus can fill them? And then, how do we come together on the beach with him so that we can celebrate his abundance. Perhaps you have an idea of how we might do these things. Personally, I wonder if the Beatitudes point us in the right direction, but that's a sermon for another day. Today, I just want to leave you with a question. What empty nets can we bring to Jesus today? Let's pray together. Lord, empty nets are so unsatisfying. Nobody wants to feel like they are laboring in vain. But thanks to you, we never really have to. Teach us, lover of our souls, to bring you our empty nets. And then fill us up, Lord. Give us this day the daily bread of abundance. Teach us to sit with one another on the shores of your grace and taste and see that you are so, so good. Be glorified, Lord. Amen.